Crate Talk Live. Off. Should we get started? Let's go. Let's let's crack on. It's okay. a beautiful day in London. It's also a, a beautiful day here in San Diego. They buy things to impress people that they don't even like. You do have to change the culture. The culture in the organization is the most important. It's as if reality is splintering into multiple shards. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I'm Rick Snyder, one of the co-hosts of this not-for-profit show where we get to explore the depths of human, digital, and social transformation. I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge and the author of Decisive Intuition. And one thing I've been intuiting is just how important these conversations have become to all of you who are listening out there uh, who really want to make a difference, who really want to influence those around you in having more pertinent conversations uh, based on this whole new reality that we're in and really having us discover what's most important. What do we need to be talking about when it comes to how can technology enhance uh, sustainability on the planet? How can it enhance uh, income equality? How can it enhance um, our greater civilization as we know it today, uh, whether it's decentralization or all the ways that we can talk about, which is exactly some of the very threads we're going to discuss today. Before I get too carried away, I want to introduce our special co-host, Af Moholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Uh, thank you for calling me special. That's a very kind of... <laughs> very special. <laughs> um, you know, welcome, welcome, folks. Uh, yet another fantastic episode. Uh, today is, is once again a special one for me. I have uh, a dear friend of mine and a mentor to me, in fact, on the show. And that's what's wonderful about this platform, where we were able to bring in diversity of thought and experience into this very powerful mission that we're on. So, of course, I'm the co-creator of, of StraightTalk.Live and, and involved in a bunch of businesses, including Growth Enabler and, uh, in fact, my own foundation that I set up recently. Um, and uh, today is very special for me because of not just the topic and the subject, uh, but the timing of the topic and subject in terms of, um, I guess, hopefully us coming through this pandemic and the big changes that we're seeing in society at every level possible. And uh, the gentleman today, Dale Kutnick, is uh, not just an experienced operator, but also a straight talker. In fact, he was a straight talker a long time ago. And whether you'd like to call him an outlier or a maverick or a game changer, um, he has a lot to say about a lot of important things right the way from entrepreneurship to uh, something that's bothering him and us, which is um, income inequality and where the world's going. And now it's not all doom and gloom. There is some good news here, of course. Uh, technology can have a positive impact on a lot of these things. Uh, it's not just seen as the evil or satanic um, you know, uh, manifestation of AI. Uh, but um, today is very much about talking about those issues. And I'm going to throw the ball over to, to Rick to introduce um, uh, Dale or set the, set the show up. And before he does so, and we start with the questioning, uh, what I would like to say about Dale, and I'm going to give him an opportunity to introduce himself. Um, I met Dale when I started in, a, in this company called Gartner many years back uh, when I was in the corporate world. And what I recall, my, one of my first interactions with him, uh, which well, I was way younger and, um, you know, quite fascinated by uh, his personality and style, 
we had a, I recall this conversation I had in an office he, he used to have, he may not remember this, and we, uh, I sort of forced him to give me some time and we, go and we went and had a meeting. And the meeting was supposed to be about something and we ended up talking about a lot of other things. And what I took away from that meeting was, it is so important to speak from the heart and say what you really think. And those moments never really come back again. So when you get that moment to voice, which is what STL is about, Straight Talk Live is about, then you seize that opportunity. And so Dale absolutely sort of inspired me to do that in my life. And I'm, I'm delighted to have him on the show. So Rick, over to you. Um, and then we'll pass it on to Dale to, to talk about his background and we'll go into the core of the, the discussion. Yeah, so simply, Dale, I'm just going to say welcome to Straight Talk Live. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And so, Dale, excited to have you on the call today for all the reasons Af mentioned. Uh, we know a lot about your distinguished uh, career um, in, in being an advisor and leading at Gartner uh, and, and also your foundation, uh, the Laura and Dale Kutnick Foundation and all the good work that you're doing there. Um, where I'd like to start the conversation is just learning a little bit more about your background. And also where I'd like you to finish off with is what really has your attention now with all the things that you've accomplished in your life? I can tell you're in a different phase of life where it's really more about mentoring and giving back, um, and which is a natural phase uh, uh, throughout our human development. And so I'm really curious about what really has your attention now, given all of the experience and expertise that you hold. So now, why don't I start there? Because I'd, I'd rather talk about uh, the current, and then I'll spend a couple minutes uh, on my background. But what has my attention now is, uh, you know, for sure, uh, the foundation that we have, and we have three primary causes that we uh, offer grants to. Uh, one is uh, education. So I'm on the board of a uh, a education based uh, a company. Uh, not-for-profit, of course, called IC Stars, so I'm going to give a plug to them. Uh, so uh, we train inner-city kids. Uh, IC Stars is inner-city stars. Uh, it's in Chicago, and we train up about uh, between 20 and 30 uh, kids a year. We also have uh, subsidiaries uh, in Milwaukee and in Columbus. Uh, Columbus is just getting going. Milwaukee's going, uh, and what we do is take inner-city kids who graduated they're all high school graduates. Most of them have uh, had, uh, I'd say, community college or other kinds of, uh, I'll say, uh, additional education, but they're not the top students. And so what we do is give them computer skills. Uh, and uh, we have a program that we work with CIOs. We have a pretty good idea of what digital skills they're looking for. We train them up for a few months. We get them internships, get them jobs. They make, uh, hopefully, uh, according to our stats, about three times as much money. And they become community leaders. So they give back. And so uh, we're currently on our 48th cycle. Uh, and uh, that's just a great organization. The people that run it are phenomenal. So that's one area of interest uh, that we actively participate in. As I said, I'm on the board. Uh, the other one is... Uh, uh, healthcare and medical uh, areas. We're very interested in medical research. Uh, we sponsor uh, different medical research at Yale, at uh, we have in the past at Danbury Hospital. Uh, that's a huge area of interest. If people aren't healthy and uh, wellness, it's very difficult uh, for them to participate actively uh, in society. And the third area uh, is uh, environment. 
uh, and I'm on the board and my son is uh, on the junior board of Riverkeeper. It's an organization that tries to manage and keep the Hudson clean mm. so that you could actually swim in it uh, and fish and do recreation. Uh, some of you may not recall, but 50 years ago, if you fell in the Hudson, you'd have to be deloused. Uh, <laughs> it was that bad. Uh, there were PCBs all over the place. So we were part of the group, and uh, this is called Riverkeeper. This goes back uh, about 20 years ago. We sued GE for putting PCBs in the Hudson mm -hmm. and forced them to clean it up for a couple billion dollars. That's still being done. Uh, as you know, PCBs, uh, this is uh, pollinated, uh, polychlorinated by phenyls, uh, are... Uh, persistent and they get into the sediment so they last for a long time and uh, we were just also instrumental in closing a aging that would be an understatement nuclear plant called Indian Point uh, a little over 30 miles north of New York City oh wait they have the same spent fuel rod pools as Fukushima did it's on an earthquake all yada 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 uh, this is less about being anti-nuclear power although many of us are more about why is this 30 miles from New York City? And if there was an accident, mm. this would be a big deal. Mm. Uh, so rather than debating nuclear power, yes or no, it's much more an issue if this was an aging plant and was uh, dilapidated. So that's really what our foundation tries to do is find these uh, areas that we can become more actively involved in. Uh, that's definitely my passion, along with, of course, the evolution of society and human beings and the uh, synergies that we're going to have with technology. And I know both you guys just mentioned, uh, yes, technology uh, itself can have incredibly positive effects. We'll talk about those in a minute, as well as potentially negative effects. Uh, I think in many ways, technology has enabled uh, a winner-take-all mentality. And uh, I think it's partly responsible, although not, not directly, because technology uh, is really neutral on that right mm -hmm. you know you mm -hmm. can use it for great stuff and we'll mm -hmm. talk about some of that or you can use it to be exploitative right and so uh, you know look we live in a world where we have both and we have to deal with both and so i think technology is agnostic right in other words how you mm -hmm. use ai you can use it to make lots of money and to go and uh you know further exploit people and situations and even the environment or you could use it for good. I think that's what we want to talk about. Right. So with that, let me just spend, uh, you know, a little bit of my background. It's, uh, you can look up my bio and so on. But so I've been in the research advisory business. I was one of the pioneers for it back in uh, 1977. Uh, when I worked at IDC, I was an analyst. Uh, I then went and helped co-found uh, a research advisory business at a company called Yankee Group in Boston. Uh, I did that for seven years, uh, took a year off, and then joined Gartner in uh, 1985. I worked for the founder of Gartner, Gideon Gartner. At the time, it was a, I think it was a, not even a $20 million business. It was probably a 10 or $12 million. And uh, I uh, ran research there. I was the uh, executive uh, director, vice president, whatever, uh, of research. Uh, and when Gartner moved concertedly to supporting uh, the user environment, which was burgeoning at that point. Prior to that, when I was at IDC, for instance, uh, the research advisory business was about, oh, easily 
95% vendor. There was vendor market research. There was no telco market. There was no competition. There was AT&T and the PTTs in Europe. And over the next five years, as AT&T became deregulated in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, we had a what now is a trillion dollar industry evolve. Think about that. A trillion dollar industry evolved from nothing. And all of a sudden, users and CIOs had to be making decisions. So that kind of grew that market. I stayed at Gartner that time for three years, left uh, because I thought there was a better way of doing the business, founded Metagroup. We took it public in 1995. My business plan said it would be seven years. We did it in six. Um, mostly, so we funded it ourselves. We took a mezzanine round the year before we went public. Uh, we were reasonably successful, but as usual, in my case, I was fighting with my board uh, by the late 2000s because I wanted to run research and they wanted me to be the CEO. And I said, no, 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 I'd rather run research. We'll get in a CEO. That didn't work out. I was trying to take the company private in 2004, bad news and good news. The bad news is we lost uh, to two strategics. The good news is we lost by 70%. That helped fund my foundation. And I decided, ah, I'll go to work at Gartner for a couple of years. They were the winner. And 16 years later, I'm still here. So mm. that's kind of my background and my passion. I love the industry. I think that we can make a difference. I love working with clients. Uh, I, my colleagues at Gartner are phenomenal. I, you know, they're, I, you know, I uh, am, am pleased to work there, but I would do this job for free. Uh, because I enjoy working with uh, people and technology and ideas so much. It's kind of like a driven think tank, right? Mm -hmm. That's really the way to think mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So thank you for that, Dale. Let, let's go right into it. So when we, um, we caught up a few weeks ago, and, you know, as we do, and the audience knows this, and we were talking about a lot of things, and the conversation went left and right and up and down and so on. And... One of the things we start, we'd like to start with really is this, this question we always ask, what is bothering you today? Um, and um, I'll let you answer that right now because I know there are a lot of things bothering you, a lot of things you're passionate about, but what is really, what is irritating you? What is the stuff that you really need to deal with right now? And you said something and I won't, I won't, I won't take that away. Let's talk about stuff that's bothering you and uh, it would be good to know why you care about that and um we'll, we'll weave into technology thereafter but I'll, I'll let you spend some time unpacking that because you did that beautifully when we had the conversation a few weeks back so what what is bothering you right now so probably aside from the environment i clearly i you know we need to save the planet and and that's why we're so active in that but I, that is definitely one of my passions and i think we fully have the capacity to do it uh, we'll, we'll talk about this more in detail. I want to talk about some other things that are bothering me uh, that kind of are related. <clears throat> but uh, to me, uh, it's not just about climate change. It's that we now have the capability to actually have uh, uh, inexpensive energy to supply all of the needs of the planet, uh, that is the energy needs. Uh, I call it one, energy is one of the eight basics, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, for the 21st century. And uh, for 150 years, we've used far longer if we include coal and, uh, uh, you know, I'll just call it in general, burning things up uh, to create energy. Um, so, uh, you know, 
Fossil fuels have had no competitor for 150 years. Uh, we thought nuclear in the 50s was going to do it, but it turned out the operating costs for nuclear were too high and still are. Maybe, maybe, possibly we'll have safe uh, and cost-effective nuclear. Uh, there are some efforts, uh, Bill Gates and some others are trying to do that, but it's clear at this point, solar, wind, and batteries. We can absolutely do that. I'm not the only one who believes this. There's many futurists. Look, if we lit up, you know, a third of the Mojave Desert with solar, we'd have enough energy for all the United States. Of course, we have to figure out how to get there. And there's all these problems to solve, but there's no doubt we can now solve that if we put our minds to it. And we're, I feel we're almost on that journey now. And the good news is fossil fuels for the first time in history have a technology competitor that is certainly over the last 10 years has followed Moore's loss. You know, solar as an uh, example, the price of solar panels has come down 80%, 80 percent, eight zero percent in the last uh, 12 years. Uh, that's mm -hmm. according to Bloomberg, uh, New Energy Futures, The Economist. Battery prices have come down 75 to 80 percent. Wind turbines, uh, probably not quite that level, but pretty close. Um, the question is, can these prices continue to go down? Well, current solar panels only have 20 or 22 percent efficiency in terms of capturing uh, the energy from the sun. 100 percent of the sun's energy hits the solar panel. Yeah, theoretically, we're probably going to be limited to probably in the low 30s with some advancements. Uh, we can get the price of the PV back plane down. We can certainly reduce the prices and overhead right now, software or soft costs, I should say, permitting and all the other things associated with solar panels, certainly at a residential. But even for project levels, uh, it's still 40%. And that's stubbornly staying there. We'll see that change. So the good news is, Fossil fuels will have a technology competitor and projections that I've seen, and I happen to agree with these, that 10 years from now, if you can't bring oil out of the ground or fossil fuels of any other kind, uh, it could be gas, et cetera, at uh, the equivalent of $20 a barrel, you won't be competitive with uh, uh, the alternative renewable energies that are available. So I see that solution. But what's really bothering me and is that, yes, that's all great. It sounds wonderful. Like U.S., Europe, a lot of the developing, uh, I should say, the developed countries are moving aggressively ahead in this. And, and we will, I, I'm quite confident, China's, uh, despite what you hear in the press, China is the leader in producing solar panels, mm -hmm. batteries, wind turbines. Yes, uh, you know, they're not going to starve their people uh, while they're getting there as, uh, you know, it took us uh, 100 years of industrial usage of energy and burning coal. I, you guys are uh, probably just barely old enough to remember that, you know, in the 50s and 60s, the smog in Los Angeles, it was unbreathable, right? And, and if you went back... Even in uh, the 80s, yeah. Yeah, if you went back 100 years ago, London, because of coal, was unbreathable. Okay, so China's working on it, and I'm quite confident they'll get there. But, you know, again... Between Western Europe and the U.S., we represent not even 20% of the world's population. Mm -hmm. We, as uh, civilized societies, uh, call us uh, more advanced, need to make sure that we subsidize Africa, uh, South America, etc., to help make that transition. Mm -hmm. This goes back to the income inequality issue. Mm -hmm. If we don't solve some of that problem, we're not going to get people to invest 
uh, I should say, especially uh, in the developing countries like India, as an example, is still buying and burning coal like crazy, even though it's poisoning their people. China recognizes that. They make us comments about it. But OK, which would you rather have? Would you want to eat? You want to live comfortably or, you know, and it is a trade off and they're working hard on it. But I think it's going to take China another at least five to 10 years to really deploy that much renewable energy. So let's go back to the income inequality issue. The, and this will lead the rest of the talk because I think we're at a point where technology, uh, you know, forget about Marx and communism and all that stuff. It was interesting because they talked about it then. We have now crossed the point, I'm convinced, where technology can supply all of the basics that human beings need. And I, when I say basics, I'm going to leave out right? Fulfillment, you know, the psychological mm -hmm. stuff. What we're talking about is uh, a 21st century version of Maslow. This is Abraham yeah. Maslow in the 1950s was a social psychologist. There's a lot of other titles famous for a book on uh, and, and a whole area of the hierarchy of human needs. And he defined the base level of physical needs, which was things like food and shelter and so on. Um, so I've expanded on that. So I call it the eight basics. So obviously there's Maslow's stuff is in there. You absolutely have to feed people. They need clothing and utensils. Uh, they need shelter. They need healthcare and wellness. They need education. They need safety. Maslow would have put that on the second one, but physical safety is very important. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously energy. And the one I've added for the 21st century is high-speed internet. If you don't have high-speed internet, it's very difficult to participate in society. Education is going to be difficult. Healthcare, as we've seen, for instance, uh, with COVID, uh, would have been much more difficult if we didn't have, uh, for instance, uh, online access to right. healthcare and wellness management and tracking right. and so on. And we saw how well that worked. Mm -hmm. So I'm convinced, and, and by the way, a big part of high-speed internet, and this will tie us in, there's the good and the bad, uh, this kind of is an area of interest to me in particular because that could either be great, you know, yeah. that is tying together people via social networks and education and all of that, or it could be awful, uh, like uh, there was a movie uh, documentary in Netflix uh, called The Social Dilemma, where they talked about the problem of how kids are getting brainwashed and kind of uh, pulled into it. Yeah, that's all possible. But could we use that, right, as a positive force, right? So right now, right this minute, there are 5 million people playing Fortnite. Mm -hmm. 5 million people on this planet are using their energies to play Fortnite because we're still in a lot of lockdown and working remote. 240 million people last year played Candy Crush. Uh, <laughs> I personally haven't done it. I've never even looked. I, actually, I did look at it because I was curious. 31 million people paid $50 a year for a new version of Animal Crossing. Hmm. So think about that. The gaming world, mm -hmm. there are people who now will pay to watch other people play games. Um, right. So the infotainment industry is going crazy. How do we use that? Mm -hmm. Right. Beyond just the capitalism, beyond just rewarding our uh, sports stars, how do we use that metaverse? And I'm mm -hmm. literally it is a metaverse. Yeah. How do we do that 
to change society. I would argue we now have all the tools and we have the technology now. Less than 5% of the world's population, certainly if you uh, get to uh, the developed countries, can provide all the food that everyone on the planet needs. If you went back 100 years, that number was 50%. Now it's less than five. In the United States, and we produce way more food than we need. If we Certainly if you take out the uh, food that is used for uh, you know, burning and creating, uh, uh, I'll call it petro-based uh, fuels out of, uh, you know, uh, out of corn and things like that. Uh, we have enough food to feed the planet. We just don't have the distribution and the will to get it there. That's a different issue. Uh, we certainly have, uh, can provide education. We can provide clothing and utensils. I mean, as an example, uh, I mentioned the eight basics uh, for, for the 21st century. Cuba is one of the poorest countries in the world. I had the opportunity to visit there uh, four years ago. It actually was five, five years ago before our <coughs> previous president uh, kind of eliminated uh, uh, the, uh, I'll call it visas that uh, we, we were able to get in on. And Cuba provides seven of the eight basics to everyone in Cuba. They have 100% literacy, 100% healthcare coverage, uh, you know, free education. Uh, everybody has food. It's not great. Yes, uh, you know, but nobody stars. Everybody has, uh, its shelter is tight. Everybody has clothes. Uh, they don't provide high-speed internet. That's a political issue. But here's one of the poorest countries on the planet, and they're able to provide seven of the eight basics for 21st century society. Think about that. We don't provide that in the U.S. Most of Western Europe does. We do not provide that. We have people who die of insulin shock because they rationed their insulin because right. they couldn't afford to buy food and uh, insulin, right? Uh, that happens in the United States. Uh, mm. That is, you know, and, and that is a hot button. There's no way, maybe the Biden administration will change that. I certainly hope so. Mm. But that's definitely one of my hot buttons. We as a society need to commit to providing the eight basics to 100% of our people. That is my hot button. Okay, I want to dive in right there a little bit. Yeah, you go, you um, go first. I'll follow you. <laughs> okay. So one of the themes that I'm hearing you as you're speaking is around the theme around power and power distribution. And so that's uh, when I think about even when you talk about the fossil fuel industry uh, and how they've basically been in power for so long, um, it reminds me of when the automobile industry literally derailed the train industry from developing in the U.S. back in the 20s beyond. Um, because they wanted to hold the power and decide how transportation was mediated at that point. Mm -hmm. And so my question to you is, there's the power of the consumer. There's also the powers of the powers that be, right, that are holding um, so much of the wealth and decision making right now, and even political power. So in a realistic way, I totally buy what you're saying. I think we do have the right technologies and resources to supply the world. And how do you get the petrochemical companies and the companies that are in power now to literally have that mindset shift, that soul shift, that heart shift. Um, obviously some of them see the profitability of going into renewables and those kind of things. That's what we're seeing. And some of them are also still resisting and, you know, wanting to milk their technologies as long as they can. How do you see that really playing out uh, in the coming decade? Yeah. So to me, we're approaching a tipping point. Uh, 
and and I, when, what I mean by that, or you call an inflection point, and uh, there's five elements to inflection points when we think about it. Uh, as an example, you know, if you went back ten years ago, uh, obviously hindsight is better than foresight, uh, and it, it's always uh, works out. But if you went back, uh, for instance and thought about retail, yeah, sure, Amazon was interesting, Alibaba was getting started, and e-commerce is getting interesting, but all of a sudden, uh, over the past 10 years, if you don't have an e-commerce play in retail, right, uh, you know, we reached the tipping point. So in other words, the regulators allowed it. So what do I mean by the, uh, I call it five elements of the tipping point? First is price performance, and, and uh, I call it, and techno convenience. So, if price performance back to renewables uh, gets so compelling that, for instance, fracking is no longer, if oil below $20 a barrel, most of the frackers can't profitably get it out of the ground. If oil goes below $30 a barrel, most of the oil majors, with the exception of uh, Saudi Aramco, um, you know, they can put a pipe in the ground in Saudi Arabia or Kuwait and oil comes out. So theirs is under $10, right? Uh, all right, so it's gonna take a few more years. Price performance makes things happen. Um, so I have 56 solar panels on my roof. I was early, but my, those solar panels will pay for themselves in displaced electric electricity charges in seven years. In seven years, the output is guaranteed for 20. In other words, I get 70% of my energy now from my solar and the last 13 years of that will effectively be free. Right. That's the first thing. So if you change the equation, as we have, that's why I was so emphatic about the price performance of renewables, that's going to drive the change. Second mm -hmm. thing, consumer behavior and consumer preferences. Uh, the electric cars, Teslas and others, and all the car manufacturers are booming, right? Mm -hmm. So there's two parts. One is business has recognized it. Uh, so they're investing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, uh, but in addition to that, and so you've got companies uh, buying fleets of electric cars, committing it. consumers putting it in. So people like me putting in solar, uh, but other people who may not be as well off can do it uh, because you can lease solar panels and pay less per kilowatt than you pay your grid. So consumers, business, the big one, of course, number four is investors. Last year, according to Bloomberg, there was over 500 billion with a B invested in alternative energy by investors. If you looked at the uh, alternative energy stocks of solar and wind and batteries and derivatives of those, uh, they had unbelievable years last year. They leveled off a little bit this year. There's some profit taking, but they're still doing extremely well and investors are putting money in. You've got money guys, uh, some of the big money center banks. Yes, they're still investing in fossil fuels. There's a lot of pressure from investors saying, get out. There's pressure on universities, for instance, in their endowments. You got to get out. They're committing to do it, not as fast as I would like. But, you know, even companies like BlackRock, uh, one of the biggest asset managers, or you look at Blackstone, which is a private equity company, is investing in putting solar panels on roofs of apartments in New York City. Now, are they doing it because they're environmentalists? <laughs> no, they're going to make money on the other side of it. There is money to be made investing in solar. As I said, look, I, my solar panels will pay for themselves in seven years. You can buy uh, about 70% of the so residential solar panels are actually leased. 
investors pick up that difference. So let me understand, you're going to pay 10% less per kilowatt as a leasing uh, that solar panel over the next 15 years. Wait, it pays for itself in seven. There's seven years of profit in there for these mm -hmm. guys to take out. The bonds, they're not really bonds, but the debt, right, that uh, the solar guys put together, Sunrun, Tesla, et cetera, uh, all put together, Solar Edge, uh, for doing that, sell out immediately. Uh, you know, the, the investors are soaking that up. Third, uh, the last area, so I mentioned, you've got price performance, consumers, business, investors, and government. So regulations tightening, certainly in Europe and the U.S., carbon accounting, carbon taxes, et cetera, that'll be, but governments are slow. The good news is price performance, consumer sentiment, business and investors are moving at light speed. Governments, as you know, the Paris Climate Accord, oh yeah, we're going to do that. And yet, eh, we haven't really made a lot of movements, certainly if you listen to Greta Thornburg, uh, Thornburg about it. Um, yeah, you know, we need to do more. Governments are going to do it. But the good news is the other four are moving much faster. Yeah. So when you th 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 thank you for that. When you uh, I want to go back to the inflection points because it's it's very important. So when you think about each one of these inflection points, right the way from price to government, and you've given the example of the environment, sustainability, renewable energy, and so on and so forth. And I, I guess one can apply it to any other <clears throat> uh, industry or sub area, for example. Let's talk a little bit about money and wealth distribution for a moment. Um, so let's focus on consumers because you talked about consumer behavior and adoption. Uh, you gave a great example. A consumers inside the inside a job who are employed and get paid a salary, and those who are doing their own thing, self-employed, and so on. They all need to have an increase in income at some point to be able to afford things, including solar panels, including lease options, and so on and so forth. Uh, we won't go into credit scores and how that works, and someone gets an, you know the ability to lease. Uh, a car or a renewable, uh, uh, you know, um, energy item or, or a solar panel. But we'll talk a little bit about drip feed, the drip feed model, which we, we believe, you know, we've been talking uh, repeatedly with numerous guests about conscious and or inclusive capitalism, right? And it's out for debate because the most optimistic, um, you know, of us, and we're all very, very optimists, all of us, or envoyalists, we, we always sort of start scratching our heads when, it, when we think about seismic changes. Um, and, the, and the pandemic has forced us to think about what could change, significantly change in the future, or will it sort of just be a little bit different, you know, and, and the jury's out on it. But one thing that you talked about in the past, when we come to income equality, is the days when you were an entrepreneur and you were running your business and the principles and ethics as a CEO and a leader to, to share the profit to share the money so others can gain and benefit and it's a very very important point around values which i do believe is in question today and then uh, one of the things you educated us on and i'll let you do it is in, in a very important subtle but seismic event that happened which has um contributed to the the change in how money is distributed in big companies so why am i not getting the same level of bonus or bonus that's commensurate with you why is the disparity between your salary as a CEO greater and greater and greater? Something's not stacking up here. Tell us, add some color, synopsize that for us. Yeah, so it's very important. So I, I'm in, I do believe in inclusive capitalism. And, and, and in the uh, mid-80s, uh, this was started, of course, in Silicon Valley, uh, there uh, was a phenomenon that 
absolutely took off. And that was giving stock options to all employees who were not. Yes, this is obviously high tech. It started, but it was spreading to other industries because if you wanted to be able to exploit technology, if you were a retailer, we're seeing that now, by the way, uh, and you want to get the best and brightest, you basically have to pay them a lot of money. So in other words, you do have to compete with the Silicon Valley companies with the M and I'll throw in there today, obviously the Amazons and the Alibabas in China and so on. Uh, you know, everybody's com competing for that talent pool. Uh, that's not everyone. Uh, so to me, inclusive capitalism is about sharing the spoils. So for instance, we've seen that in the past 30 years. Look, when I was growing up, I grew up in Detroit. You had professional athletes. I remember uh, I, I worked, uh, my father was a pharmacist. I worked in his drugstore and we had future Hall of Fame football players humping beer in the summer on a beer truck to make ends meet, you know, to have enough because their salaries. Now, obviously, sports figures, as you know, have, you know, that's changed, right? Collective bargaining, all these things change where sports figures now and, and, and entertainment people, uh, when studios had the power, right, actors and actresses were kind of that's changed. We've changed that equation. They now get percentages. They're involved. Uh, you know, in, in sports, uh, the uh, whether it's basketball, soccer, football, etc., uh, those are now shared. Athletes and infotainers are some of the richest people in the world. Right. Yes. Look, in Silicon Valley, uh, obviously, and, and uh, entrepreneurs, yes, they get rich. What happened is so in the, in the 80s, we came up with, we, the industry, the world uh, came up with stock options and companies like Intel and so on were some of the pioneers uh, of that, Gordon Moore uh, and, and some of his uh, cohorts uh, after they left Fairchild Semiconductor and started Intel. And that spawned a whole thing where almost all employees got stock options. That meant that if you were lower middle class or middle class, you could be a secretary and you could, you know, make hundreds of thousands of dollars if that company succeeded. And that did happen, right? That lower, middle and upper middle class now was able to go up a level. Uh, and that happened through the 80s into the 90s. When I worked at Gardner the first time, everyone got stock options. At Meta, uh, my company, everyone got stock options. My proudest moment was, uh, you know, I had one of my... Um, Early employees, a uh, single mother used to collect uh, bottles and cans to get the deposit for her uh, daughter's college education. When we went public, she made enough money. She didn't have to worry about that right anymore because uh, she was a controller. So she was. But even some of my secretaries, you know, made real money, right, uh, that they could uh, retire on. And that was true of a lot of companies. In uh, the early 2000s, uh, the I'll call them evil geniuses. This uh, is a Kurt Anderson book. Uh, oh, that's, you know, you can't do stock options for everyone. It dilutes. But it was, you know, any financial person could look at the bottom of my, of our, any income statement, fully diluted shares outstanding. In other words, stock options and the money. People were complaining that there were these big overhangs of stock options that would later become due in these companies. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the long and the short of it, the lobbyists won and uh, a, uh, I'll call it a regulation was passed called FAS 123R. It eventually was passed in the early uh, 2000s, went into effect in 2004, 2005. 
I refer to it as the greatest blow to the democratization of capitalism uh, in 100 plus years. Why is that? It forced companies to account for stock options. This gets a little bit complex, but I'll try to make it simple. Um, it forced companies to account for any stock options that they gave, even though if I gave you a stock option, say, for $100 today, because that's the price of the stock, I now have to figure out, oh, but there's potential value in that. Mm -hmm. Turns out it uses a Black-Scholes formula. We don't need to get into all the details. But basically, you now have to account as an expense on your operating uh, uh, income statement. You have to account for that. And it ranges from 20 to 30%. There's a lot of different pieces uh, of that stock. So in other words, I have to take, if I give you a stock option, the stock today is $100. Uh, even though it's worthless today, mm -hmm. uh, I have to account for 20 or $30 of the future gain in my uh, income statements. Like, oh, well, I'm not going to give away that many stock options. So companies went, like us, from diluting, uh, by then uh, I had changed, I'd already sold the company to Gartner. But by that point in 2005, what ended up happening is, so companies were diluting 5% prior to that for stock options. Uh, after that, they went to 2%. Mm. And so from giving lots of people stock options, if not all, at Meta, we gave everyone stock options so that when I started the company, we put all the money in. I owned 50%. By the time we went public, I owned less than 20 that was fine. I was very happy with that. Um, you know, a uh, smaller piece of a bigger pie. That was my strategy. But uh, back to FAS, uh, companies now only dilute, they give out 2%. Mm -hmm. And that goes to senior management, not to employees, for the most part. Um, and maybe a few people further down the line, but in general, companies stop giving out stock options. Now, the other uh, way to do that, for instance, in Germany, as you know, Germany has some of the strongest unions on the planet, some of the highest yeah. labor costs on the planet. Yeah. And yet the workers' councils there are now on the board of directors. Mm. They're involved in profit sharing. So whereas unions in the U.S. having grown up in Detroit, uh, mm. it's like not only did they push for higher wages, fine, no big deal. They also pushed work rules to keep people employed because mm. they didn't get a cut of the action. Mm. Right. Mm. What they did in Germany is uh, with the workers' councils, they're cut into the profit. Their members are cut into the profit. So they have a shared interest in the success of German auto companies. They still build cars in Germany. It's one of the most expensive labor markets in the world. How do they do that? Right? I drive a BMW, it comes from Germany. Uh, they might've been built somewhere else. They build them everywhere now. But the fact of the matter is the workers' councils, yeah, you know, look, any union has issues with it in terms of feather bedding and, you know, pushing work rules and so on. But if you cut them into the interest of the company, mm -hmm. and I've definitely found that having, you know, lots of people share uh, in the growth of the company and the benefits, that actually ended up, I'm convinced that's what enabled us to be successful. There's no mm -hmm. doubt about it. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating because, yep. you know, we, we, when we think about motivations and we think about, we talk about why, why, you know, why do you, why do you do what you do and purpose and so on and so forth. Um, at, going back to Maslow's hierarchy and, and even adding the bits that you've talked about, fundamentally empowerment is a combination of things. It's, it's empowerment of thoughts and exposure, but unfortunately the, the green stuff, whether it's crypto, it's digital and or real fiat money does have a role to play in, in creating opportunities. 
And so this was a fascinating discovery. What what do you magic wand moment if you can wave it a Harry yep. Potter moment? Um, what what sh- what can we do differently moving forward? If you do fundamentally believe this is a seismic event, it's actually destroyed uh, the core basis of how inclusive you know, capitalism or the economics of a company have been totally destabilized. And I do buy into that. And by the way, when DNI, diversity, inclusion and ethics and sustainability, all of this stuff is extremely hot right now. And it's at board level. One of the things that's come up repeatedly outside of gender bias and the lack of gender diversity, usually upper middle class white male um, individuals running companies and you don't have much representation. Apart from that, you're starting to look at salaries. You're like, whoa, what, what the hell's going on here? So what is your, you've been given the magic wand for five minutes. What, yeah. What you yeah. So I, I'm not against CEOs making money back to the, you know, and making lots of it. I don't have an issue. It's just maybe not quite as much, but uh, I, I'm not in favor of, you know, restricting that because in the past, if you went back, it was the capitalists that made all the money, shareholders, owners, etc., And that wasn't fair either. So I was fine with that. The issue is, it needs to spread out more across the company. And again, mm-hmm. I, what would I, I you rescind FAS 123. It's the most ridiculous rule imaginable. Any sophisticated investor understood the whole stock option dilution and so on. And the government, not only rescind FAS 123, but to kickstart it again, the government needs to offer companies incentives. This is a simple thing, incentives to give more people stock options. I mean, it's not like company profitability Mm-hmm. Even, you know, for about 60 or 70% of the companies, despite COVID last year, profitability at many companies was off the charts. It was record mm-hmm. levels, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. Yes. So if the government gave companies incentives, just like they give companies incentives for investment tax credits to invest in capital equipment. Well, guess what? In the service industry, which is 70% of developed economies, uh, banking, insurance, what we do, et cetera, Gartner, uh, et cetera. um, Yeah, we don't, there's not a lot of capital investment. You know, what's the capital investment in Google or uh, or Facebook or Microsoft has some, but it's software more than capital investment. Okay, data centers and so on. But, you know, the, the real issue is the government could offer incentives. I think because governments need to pay rep play referee, you have two choices. Either you take the money from the rich people. I'm not against. Uh, again, I'm for higher taxes on wealthy people. That's helpful. Although we all know there's going to be ways, even in Europe, that's more enlightened, that they get around oh, yeah. it, park it oh, yeah. and, you know, tax havens in Liechtenstein or Isle of Wight or wherever, um, you know, uh, and so Isle of Man, all those, you know, there's all these uh, uh, places uh, that they do that, Luxembourg, Monaco, etc. Getting all the countries to agree to that, good luck. But if you came up with if the governments came up with a shared version of capitalism and offered companies incentives to do that which by the way that's one piece of it that only takes care of part of it look i i'm a universal basic income guy i think that there is a certain level of income that uh people should be assured uh so you know in, in fact uh some of the couple of the presidential candidates last year uh talked about that uh, Mr. Yang talked about it. He's now mm-hmm. running for mayor of New York. Uh, that's going to take a while. Uh, there's some European places that are experimenting with that. but uh, And a lot of economists have talked about that. At the same time, uh, so I think that we need to guarantee everyone the basic aid, mm-hmm. right? 
everyone needs that basic eight that I, I mentioned. I'll just mention it again. Food, clothes, you know, food, nourishment, clothing, basic utensils, shelter, healthcare, wellness, education, safety, energy, and high-speed internet. If mm. Cuba can do it, anyone can do it. Right. And Cuba, the, again, the only reason they're not on the high speed Internet is more political issues than uh, obviously they could do that. Mm -hmm. So to me, you know, that part should be taken away from capitalism. Capitalists can, can yeah, around the fringes. Look, 60 or 70 percent of us in the services business are really playing. Uh, I'll argue we're already playing in the metaverse anyways. This is Ready Player One version 2021. For those of you who didn't see the movie, it's about uh, takes place in the mid 30s and people spend most of their time in a metaverse. They're educated they're, uh They work in the metaverse. They have avatars. We're this far away. That's why I made the joke about all the people in the gaming world and, right. you know, uh, looking at TikTok. And mm -hmm. so could we leverage Right. So in addition to solving that income inequality, and it's not about income because income is, look, again, a lot of it is a game. A lot of what we're currently playing, it's derivative games that uh, we're basically handing off. We're not providing people with the basic aid. Most of us don't do that. We provide right. each other with entertainment or we call it business. And that's an interesting discussion in and of itself. But, you know, is business anything more than entertainment? Hmm. You know, we're greasing the wheels of capitalism. I agree. But, you know, when you look at things like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which, again, we're monetizing artifacts, you know, a LeBron James dunk, uh, you know, a uh, Tom Brady rookie card, really worth three and a half or four million dollars, a piece of cardboard. Right. Think about the abstraction there mm -hmm. that we're dealing with in the real world or not dealing with. Mm -hmm. Again, that's fine for people to play with. We were talking about income people can generate. Great. That's fine. Let them play that. But guaranteed, you know, the eight billion, seven and a half billion people in the world, and we have the means to do that, we can guarantee them, you know, the basic eight. If Cuba can do it, everybody can do it. China's working on that. We'll see. This is the great experiment of the 21st century is can a autocratic capitalist system work better than a, quote, right. democratic uh, uh, capitalist system? You know, forget communism. That's not what it's about. They're, China's more capitalist than we are uh, in uh, terms of, uh, you know, doing, uh, uh, allowing companies and even state-owned enterprises. It's absolutely capitalist, but it's autocrat. You know, we may not agree with that, but we'll see if that works out. So Dale, one of the questions that just came in from Facebook, we have a lot of activity there. And also a reminder, if you're listening on the call right now, please send in your questions to Dale, uh, is just on this very topic. And the question is, um, stock options aside, how do we make a meaningful move toward more inclusive capitalism given profit and bottom line have ruled for so long? So what incentive do companies have? We've talked about, you've just talked about governments and other agencies and politics. What incentive do companies have to change if the shareholders are happy with their profits? Yeah, I, I'm. So I'm not a fan of uh, putting in place all of the uh, ESG type stuff and forcing companies to do that. I think you have. We should offer a little bit of encouragement for it. Absolutely, by incentives, the government can set those up. You know, where the government wants to change things, like you know, 
tax credits for investing in people, or uh, as we just mm -hmm. talked about, tax credits for raising pay and things like mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. I think the idea, though, of you know, the government getting that involved in the business is probably not the right approach, mm -hmm. certainly not in this country and in general. Look, European socialism in the 50s and 60s didn't work. I'm not advocating government control of, you know, basic steel or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. I am advocating government control of healthcare and education, or I should say oversight and management. Mm -hmm. And certainly, look, you can have capitalism underneath that, you know, mm -hmm. and competing for, we can do administration better than the government. I'm all mm -hmm. for that. I think that forcing companies to pay attention to ESG is fine, but the problem is if you force a CEO to pay attention to ESG, you know, uh, or, or to any of these other programs, I think you can do it a little bit, but, you know, I'm not, while I'm not a total fan, I'm going to make a joke here of uh, Milton Freeman and the Chicago school that all that matters to shareholders and all that should matter to a CEO. So you have too many countervailing interests, right? The problem is when it comes to stakeholders versus shareholders, you know, employees and uh, greater society, that's really for the government. Mm -hmm. That's what the government should do. The government should force companies to pay attention to that, uh, you know, with policy, but forcing a CEO, right, to, you know, compensation and things like that, that are tied, there's, you know, let's just take the US, there are so, we are so diverse in, you know, what is uh, the right thing, you know, should you be more woke? Should you be more this? Should you be more that? You know, I'm not a big political, uh, I'd say political correctness, I find that objectionable. Uh, I, you know, people talk about that all the time. But I, I think that you have, we have to find a balance here. So I, again, I, that's just personal opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't, I don't think it works. Uh, I've seen where, the, I'm, I'm again, working with not-for-profits, I see some of the paralysis that we have in not-for-profits. Everybody wants to do the right thing, but because there's so many different opinions about the right way to go about doing it, you know, capitalism, companies, capitalists, that's great. They generate it and the government uh, figures out how to be referee and redistribute it. Mm -hmm. Good point. Point. We have another question. Sorry. As an example, just a point on that, we will get our universal basic income through higher mm -hmm. taxes on companies. That, that yeah. you don't stop, the, you don't make companies, make them uncompetitive. Yeah. Europe did that in the 50s and 60s with socialism. Their companies were uncompetitive. That's not the right way to do it. If you look at what China's done, they say, no, no, we're going to make our, comp com yeah, our companies competitive in the world market. And they're very competitive. We don't have a lot of time, but I'm just dying to ask your opinion on this around cryptocurrencies, blockchain technology, decentralization. What role do you think this is going to be playing in terms of leveling the playing field uh, for individuals? Zero. Um, I, I think cryptocurrencies are going to be, uh, they're here to stay. And as long as governments tolerate private, you can call uh, anarchistic, whatever for a while, but just like uh, countries did with the internet, mm -hmm. uh, they slowly but surely take control of it. Uh, mm -hmm. The internet's controlled in Russia. It's pretty much controlled in India. It's mm -hmm. definitely controlled in China. Wait, that's uh, it. And then we throw in a few other autocracies. 60% of the world, the internet is completely controlled. What gets out? You know, you look at Brazil or, you know, any autocracy 
Iran, uh, you know, all over there, Saudi Arabia, you know, they control the internet. So that's what's going to happen to crypto. And in fact, uh, China just came out with an announcement that they were going to increasingly control cryptocurrencies. Right. India is talking about banning them. You could see that. But by the way, the governments will issue cryptocurrencies. I would argue, and we don't have time to get into this, it'll be another show, mm. with modern monetary theory and governments, we used to say printing. There is no more printing. I just say issuing money. Do you realize that the total debt held by com countries, companies, and individuals is now three to four times the total G, four to, almost four times the total GDP of the world. Right. So I think we need to stop worrying about in modern monetary theory. We stop worrying about the debt because I don't know. We just issued another few trillion in debt in the U.S. and uh, we could continue to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you're going to see that as long as people believe in it. And with cryptocurrencies and NFTs. Yeah, look, this is all just part of the Ready Player One, the game. We're mm -hmm. all playing it. Uh, it doesn't go away. But I do think the real issue with crypto, governments will control it. They don't mm -hmm. want anarchy. They don't right. want decentralization. No company wants to have, you know, decentralized decision making. I can assure you Facebook and uh, Google and all those other guys don't want it either. Yeah, they're not going to want to lose their power over those industries as well. The banking cartel, et cetera. Right. Absolutely. They may pretend for a while, but in the mm -hmm. end, that's not what they really want to do. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so governments will take, in my view, governments will take increasing control of cryptocurrencies. NFTs are nothing more than the crazies who really believe that they're cardboard. I'm, I'm joking here, but there really was a market for, you know, artifacts of, uh, you know, Mickey Mantle or LeBron James or Lionel Messi or whatever a piece of cardboard is worth millions. It's like, uh, do you really appreciate looking at it? I could look at an artifact of that and I get the same pleasure owning it as long as somebody else might want to buy it. I guess, I, you know, you can't eat it. You can't wear it. It's not one of the eight basics. That's a game capitalist play. Mm -hmm. Look, if they want to play it, fine. That's why NFTs will continue to be around as long as there are the greater fool theory uh, of people want to play this game. You know, they want to buy digital weapons that they can do uh, the uh, World of Warcraft better and pay money for those. OK, look, people have too much time and money on their hands. Look at how much time people spend online. We have to government, you know, and uh, our, our universities have to get better on board and figure out, wow, with all these people feeling this need for belonging. Mm -hmm. NFTs are a type of belonging. You belong to a group. QAnon, you belong to a group. You know, we all belong to groups. The more COVID just accentuated this, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, they just made it more so, mm -hmm. right? And so people feel even more need for belonging. Look at social networks. Look at TikTok. Look at all the crazy stuff with gaming and watching. Ga so if we feel that need, is there a way to take that kind of infotainment and by the mm -hmm. way this is only going to get more immersive as mm -hmm. we have 5g and leos uh, low earth orbit satellites the technologies that will enable connections we're going to have even more of this wait mm -hmm. ready player one is still 15 years allegedly away um for those of you uh, who mm -hmm. haven't read the book or seen the movie uh we're already there mm -hmm. we're already, all of this stuff is we're already there it's a mm -hmm. virtual world we live in yeah yeah we got, we're going to be going through the most prolific um, period of change, I think one that is unprecedented, really, even if you look back at his historic events, 
uh, whilst we have a bit of solace and we feel good about some level of certainty around, well, it happened 50 years ago, or it happened a thousand years ago. I think what's to come is is truly, and uh, hopefully we'll be around. Look, if people told you 15 years ago that you, uh, you know, be spending hours a day wandering around looking at a thing on your hand uh, as you're mobile. Um, you just said, nah, that's not going to happen. If you went back 25 years, uh, McKinsey, actually it's 30 years now, McKinsey did a study for AT&T. There's only a need for may, maybe, you know, 100,000 of those. Do they mean per hour or per day? Right? Believe it or not, they didn't think people would need mobile phones because they had mm -hmm. a desk phone and uh, I have my phone at home. What do I need mm -hmm. this for? Yeah. As we get more bandwidth available and infotainment mm -hmm. picks up and we get second life, third life, fourth life, you know, more <laughs> virtual worlds that people can participate in. What is that gaming world? What are yeah. NFTs? What are, you know, all this stuff we do? And I mentioned, okay, we're a few derivatives from that in those of us who are in the, uh, services business but yeah. it's pretty close it's yeah. pretty close we, closer than it's ever been closer than yes it's ever been. and i didn't I, one last thing <laughs> you know there's a whole raft of topics that we could touch on you know things that are going to relate to this you know hyper automation is going to make goods widely available people you know produce again back to the producing clothes or whatever that people or, or food that people need processed food agricultural revolutions in terms of plant-based diets. I'm not advocating you have to give up meat. I personally don't uh, do. I don't eat meat uh, or dairy products, but I'm not saying everybody has to do it, but we could create a lot less stress on the planet and have more food for people with plant. And that, those are happening, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they're getting, it's not like you have to eat emulsified veggie burgers anymore. They actually, you know, beyond an impossible burgers actually taste reasonably, reasonably good. We have genetic engineering that's going to totally change, mm -hmm. totally change the human race mm -hmm. in the next 50 years. That's a topic for another discussion, but there's a great book that Jennifer Duda wrote and so on, you know, in terms of, you know, when you look at things like uh, CRISPR and gene editing and yeah, there's a lot of ethical concerns around it. Yes. Uh, you know, are we going to create super races? And all of those are interesting questions, but yeah. the genie's out of the bag. High school kids can get CRISPR technology now for next to nothing. It's open source and they could change yeah. the color of plants like that. Yeah. yeah, Dale, would you be uh, well um, interested in coming back on our show at some point Absolutely. in your future? I love to because what what I would love to do is go even deeper in some of the technical applications in in the fields that you're talking about right now into far more detail. So I think that would be a fantastic future show if you're up for that. I am. I am up for that. Uh, yeah, there's the new technologies that are going to change the world. You know, 3D printing and yes. material science. Exactly. We, you know, I mentioned genetic engineering are so profound. Yes, I mean, it, it makes a lot of, you know, the last 20 or 30 years is going to look like child's play in 10 years from now. Let's yeah. double click on that in July if we can. Um, we'll, we'll talk to you about that. I just want to share one uh, thank you to you from our audience member, uh, Tony, who says a huge thank you, Dale, for all that you do and continue to do. We'll certainly show the replay of this to my teenagers. They will agree with, on high speed, high speed internet and your enthusiasm for the things we care about is infectious. Uh, we'll bring them to the next session. You should maybe do a Gartner for teenagers, question mark. <laughs> As always, great work, Athen Rick. So this guy, uh, Tony, I think I know who Tony is, uh, but just very appreciative of the energy and uh, passion that you're bringing today. Thank you. I, I, again, I appreciate it, guys. I much appreciate it. Well, 
There's a lot of fun. If there's, you know, I know we didn't get a chance to get as many questions and, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm happy to uh, if we could send those along. I'm happy to mm-hmm. respond to people. Um, but I, I think this hopefully will raise a lot of questions that people want to answer. That's great. And then where can people find out about more about you and your work today? Where should they go? Uh well, again, I work at Gartner. That's what I do for a living. But uh, yeah, you go. <laughs> you become a Gartner client. Gartner is a definitely uh, uh, you know it is a obviously a public company. So, but that's not really, you, you could go and uh, look at uh, my profile on Facebook or LinkedIn or something like that of what we're doing. Uh, you, I don't do a lot of blogging because uh, just what I said, I, I'm too busy with uh, trying to solve other problems and merely being politically correct doesn't do it. That's why I'm so enthusiastic about this. It's a way to get so kind of that pent up message. I, you know, I, I, I actually still work full time for Gartner, mm. so I don't really have time to do all that. That and between that, my uh, foundation and work I do for that, and obviously my passion. You can see in the background is uh, is skiing on glaciers. Uh, with that happens to be my son, uh, but um, you know it's tough to fit it all in. Uh, but that's why I love this opportunity to uh, share my views. That's great. And where can people find out more about you and your foundation as well? The Laura uh, Day- you can just look. Uh, we don't, we don't, foundations don't advertise. So there's mm-hmm. nothing to look at. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we are, are very uh, systematic about what mm-hmm. we do. My son uh, runs it because mm-hmm. that, that is what he does. Uh, but there's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you can look up the Dale and Laura Cutnick Foundation, mm-hmm. see what we do. And, you know, obviously it's a foundations are public entities, so you can uh, find out about that. Excellent. Um, Af, any final words before we wrap uh, up today? I think what, a, what a wonderful session. Great, great uh, energy and passion and, and a lot to think about. And I think you're absolutely right. We had a lot of questions. We weren't able to tackle them. We absolutely want you back in July uh, on a different topic. And we'll dig a little bit deeper into some of the other things you've talked about. <laughs> I think... I think the inflection points and the five phases of that and this sort of augmentation of the hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, is a fascinating takeaway for a lot of us in discussion and debate. And, you know, we always say on STL, we're trying to influence the influencers. So a lot of our past speakers jump on these sessions as well. They are thought leaders in their own right and authors and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so one of the other things is you will automatically go onto our speakers page. So for those who are listening on replays and live, you can find info on, on Dale there. And we have our um, STL Mavericks group uh, where we've got a lot of our speakers. It's on WhatsApp right now. We'll probably move on to a secure platform later, messaging platform. But we, a lot of the debate and discussion, provocative, you know, objective, open discussion happens there. And we're trying to create a tribe or multiple tribes to drive change. You're doing it through your foundation, but not everyone has a foundation. So we all want to help in some way, shape or form. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We'll have you back. By the way, that's another, that's an example of belonging. That's another group, right? That's right. Absolutely. You know, we're all in multiple groups. And so I think that mm-hmm. uh, that need of belonging yes. uh, and, and whole need for another topic, by the way, uh, kind of a lead in. If you think about our psychological security, we've given that up. Yes. In exchange for belonging to these crazy groups that are, you know, Facebook yeah. and the social networks that are taking That's our right. data. We've given up our psychological security in exchange for belonging to these groups. That's right. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs rearing its head again in that way. Yep. That's right. So Dale, thanks again so much for your insights, your passion. um, And we are excited to have you back. So thank you again for being part of Straight Talk Live. 
All right. My and pleasure. for and for belonging to our tribe. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And then lastly, for those of you tuning in for next week, we have a very exciting show around the AI revolution and education specifically in some of the latest AI technologies with Nicholas Carinos, uh, Aliki, and Ken. Uh, we're going to be on a panel talking about the latest in AI and how to actually uh, bring education in a whole revolutionary way that's going to be upgrading uh, the next generations. So it's going to be very exciting. I want to say one, I want to say one thing to, to, yeah. to really close off. I spoke to Nick earlier today. Um, great guy. What a, what a mm. fantastic mind. He, and I, I, I'll sum it up this way. I said, so tell me a bit about Sophos AI. And I won't give the game away right now, Rick, because we're going to announce it later. That's right. I said, Imagine. I said, how are you disrupting or changing the way in which we educate our children? He said, uh, he said, Einstein. I said, yeah, I know Einstein. He said, imagine if you could have a deep fake or equivalent video of him, the avatar, the Einstein right in front of you. And the AI has every bit of knowledge at whatever level about Einstein. And you're having a dialogue with Einstein. It's not a mm -hmm. chatbot. They don't work. It's a dialogue with Einstein. And you're interfacing with him. You're talking about mm -hmm. his past. You're talking about why he created what he did. He said, that is what education needs to be in, in the immersive world, in the metaverse. Mm. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. So really excited. Very cool. Um, uh, thank you so much again, Dale. Um, be, be safe, be well, as you say. And looking forward to having you back on the show again. Uh, thank you. Thank you to everyone. Thanks, Rick. Thank you all. See you soon. Straight Talk Live.